Welcome to the Bible Mind Podcast, where we seek to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and to see everything in life from a biblical mindset. Hi again, this is Theophilus. I hope that you had a wonderful Passover and Easter Sunday, or what we would also call Resurrection Sunday, where not only Christians celebrate that time, but also many Jews. And whether a Jewish person is religious or secular, many times they celebrate Passover because it's been an instituted tradition and really a commandment that was um, put forth by God from the very beginning so that they would commemorate that every year. And as we Christians know that Passover is a type and a shadow of Jesus as our Passover lamb to save us from death. And speaking of the Jews, I'm going to return to the series that I was on. I went over reason one, and I'm going to go over reason two today. It's not in any special order. Today, I would like to share about understanding God's heart for the Jews and how we need to have God's heart for the Jews as well. Because as most people know, when you love someone, you want to care about what they care about. Because throughout the whole of the Bible, he talks about the Jews, and we look at the history of the Jews in the Bible, but we don't always focus on God's emotions for the Jews, how he really feels about the Jewish people. And if we were to focus in on his emotions and really look up those verses where he talks about his feelings for the Jews and how he was so um, jealous and upset when they turned to other gods and the delight that he felt when they first came to him in the desert and they were willing to obey. I mean, all of these different emotions are traveling through God. And we don't always realize that God is very emotional. And we don't often think about how we can understand God's heart. If we were to understand his emotions, then we would have a doorway into understanding his heart. And again, when we love someone, We want to be interested in, we want to care about the things that they deeply care about. And God deeply cares about the Jews. And I just want to go over a few verses that illustrate God's heart for the Jewish people. As we know, the Israelites, the Hebrews, they weren't always obedient. So from their perspective, God was distant at times. And it wasn't, as we say as Christians, it wasn't that God moved away from them, but they moved away from God, right? Because in our sin, we turn away from God. And in Isaiah 49, it talks about the servant of the Lord, who not only was going to come to restore Israel back to her place, which has yet to happen, but also to be a light to the Gentiles. And we know this servant to be Jesus. In verse 14, it talks about Israel's emotions towards God. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. And starting from verse 15, this is what God feels about Israel. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. And all of that sounds pretty intense. So we can only imagine how deeply, how strongly God feels for the Jews. I mean, I've never had a child, but I've been a teacher of children and I've, you know, helped out as far as 
um, working with kids a lot. And there have been times where I've been very protective over certain kids, I would say. I worked with special needs kids for a while and I really loved those kids. And because they were more vulnerable and maybe they didn't fit in as well with the other kids, I just was very protective over them. So I understand even in a small way how God may feel towards Israel right here. So I just want to share another vignette of God's emotions, and it can be found in Jeremiah 2. He brings this charge against Israel that she was a faithful wife at first, but then she went astray. And then all throughout Jeremiah 2, you can read God's emotions into everything that he is sharing with Israel. And so at the very beginning, it says, starting from verse one, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem saying, thus says the Lord. And in another version, it says shout. So, I mean, he wants to be heard for his emotions right here. And it says, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal. When you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown, Israel was holiness to the Lord, the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him will offend disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. And you can also recognize how jealous, how protective, um, how fiercely loving God is for Israel, because he's like, you know, nobody's going to mess with my wife. Um, If anybody even tries to mess with my wife, I'm going to deal with them. Now, that brings us to another part of God's emotions that people don't often think about. And that's the fact that God married Israel at Mount Sinai. That was, a, for lack of a better way of saying it, a formal ceremony. And they also went over, in Hebrew culture, what is called a ketubah. It's a legal document which spells out the terms and conditions of a marriage and establishes the roles and responsibilities of both husband and wife. You can read more deeply into this whole marriage ceremony if you look from Exodus 19 all the way through 24. So Exodus 19 is where they approach Mount Sinai, and then this whole process starts. At Exodus 24, you see God calling up Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders of Israel to basically meet with him and have a meal with him. So when we think about the new covenant, where we as the people of God are going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb, they also ate and drank together. They had a marriage supper back in Exodus 24. And I want to focus on the core part of this marriage ceremony. And so if you can kind of picture marriage ceremony in your mind, and up front is basically Moses. He is the minister that's officiating the ceremony. And the two parties that are getting married are God and the nation of Israel. So this is what God says in verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So in a sense, this is what the ketubah is laying out for the people of God, that they need to obey his covenant to follow him, and God will make them a special chosen people to display his glory, his truth, his righteousness to the rest of the nations of the world. And starting in verse 7, 
So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So you can kind of see the pattern of the marriage ceremony. And basically the people of Israel at that time, they said, yeah, we will do whatever the Lord commands us to do. And what we don't realize oftentimes as Christians is they weren't only speaking for themselves, the people present at that time, but they were speaking for all of their descendants. So all the Jews that are living presently in this world right now are still under that same marriage contract that their ancestors made before God a long time ago. And we know from the Bible that that marriage has gone through rocky times and there were times of separation, but God has never fully given up on the Jewish people. And you can see that in books like the book of Hosea, where God illustrates his relationship with the Jews, with Hosea marrying a woman of adultery. Through her own unfaithfulness, she experiences the consequences of sin. And God tells Hosea to go and buy her back and to set his love upon her again. You could read about this in the book of Hosea, but especially Hosea chapter three. But again, let's kind of bring this closer to home. Uh, I'm not married. So you're learning all these different things about my life. Yes, I'm still single. But if I were married, and I had a spouse that basically cheated on me, I would be very hurt, I'd be very upset, and I would be very angry. And this is how God feels about his wife, his spouse. But regardless of all the different things that Israel has done, as far as her unfaithfulness to God, chasing after other gods, not obeying God's word as they promised that they would. God continues to commit himself to Israel. He has never forsaken Israel. He will never forsake Israel. And that's a lie that has been perpetuated in Christian circles that somehow God has forsaken Israel. And it's called replacement theology. The idea is that Israel has screwed up so badly that now God has forsaken Israel and all the promises that he gave to Israel in the Old Testament have now been transferred over to the church. And now we have inherited those promises that rightfully belong to them. And people have gone so far as to say, well, whenever you read the Old Testament and all the way through the New Testament, wherever it says Israel, you can just replace that with the church. And that is such a travesty because God had never said anything like that, um, nor will he. And actually there are Bible verses that talk about his undying, unwavering, everlasting commitment to Israel. So when people perpetuate this replacement theology, basically they are being unbiblical. And I think it's such an error that it can lead people in a bad direction for the end times. Because in a previous podcast, we talked about how God will evaluate people according to their view of Israel and the Jews, and whether or not they stand with Israel and the Jews. So if somebody has believed replacement theology, then they're basically thinking, well, the Jews are not relevant anymore. Why would I even need to think about them? Because now those promises have been given to me as a believer and the Jews have now been pushed off to the side. And I can just tell you that there is nothing that is further from the truth. 
It's hard to believe, but this is still in our modern day. I was driving home one night recently, and I heard this teacher forward slash preacher on the radio, and he was sharing about the book of Revelation. So I was happy that he was talking about the end times, but he seriously misinterpreted the passage because he was looking through this lens of replacement theology. He was going over chapter seven of the book of Revelation, where it talks about the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. So you can maybe spiritualize that and go, okay, well, it says that they're Jewish, but they're not really Jewish. But then God, to prevent that from happening, he broke the 144,000 into these Jewish tribes of 12,000 each. So he you know, first said, okay, well, they're of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. And it's really hard to spiritualize all of the different tribes of Israel. I think he just kind of didn't try to even try to spiritualize that. But the whole point of it was, even though I'm sure he was well-meaning, This is something that he was taught when he went to seminary or he was taught when he grew up in church. But the whole point is you really have to not look at what the Bible is actually saying in order to interpret the Bible in these ways. And basically he stepped over the fact that these Jewish evangelists were Jewish and they came from these literal tribes of Israel. And that's really one of the reasons why I wanted to go over this series, five reasons why Christians need to care about the Jews, because I don't think we have been explicitly taught why we need to care about the Jewish people, why we need to care about Israel. And there are so many in the Christian church that are being taught this way of thinking of replacement theology. So maybe you've been taught that and you're like, oh, this is the first time I've heard about these things. I just challenge you to go into these passages and to meditate upon them, to journal about them, to read deeper into the context. And always we need to pray for people and we need to pray for ourselves because we can get it wrong. We can have a huge blind spot when it comes to the scripture regarding these very important areas. And we need to pray that those who have believed replacement theology, that their eyes would be made open and that they would see the Jews, they would see Israel for what it actually says in the Bible. And I want to go to one of those very important passages And this one is Jeremiah 31. And it's basically continuing this whole marriage metaphor between God and Israel. Just as a recap, we've been talking about trying to understand God's heart for Israel and also coming to the point where we have God's heart for Israel. So as we understand his emotions, as we can see his commitment to Israel, then we can also appropriate that for ourselves. Now in Jeremiah 31, this is a very important passage for every Christian to know and to understand. Oftentimes as Christians, what we call the new covenant, we tend to see it as a Christian thing or that that belongs to us because we're part of the church. And that is true. I mean, to a certain extent, it does belong to us, but really that new covenant was only a continuation of the old covenant that God had made with Israel and with Judah. And I'm going to Jeremiah 31, starting from verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So let's just stop right there for a moment. 
this is the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated when he came and there was the Passover supper here. Behold, you know, the wine of the new covenant. So this is the new covenant that we're talking about. And notice that it is addressed to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. It's not addressed to the church. It's addressed to the Jews. It's addressed to them. I really believe that this point needs to be emphasized because as Christians, I think we just read over this passage and kind of gloss over the fact that it's really addressed to the Jewish people and it's not necessarily addressed to the Gentiles. Going on, this is not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Again, this is the covenant that he made with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. It was a ketubah, a marriage covenant. And so he even says, yeah, even though I was a husband to them. So now he's going to make a new covenant with them. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. I mean, a lot of what we as Christians would see the new covenant is what God is talking about here in Jeremiah 31. You know, he's going to forgive their sin. He's going to remember it no more. He's going to write the law upon their hearts. Um, They will each know God for themselves. They will have that capacity because the Holy Spirit is the one that leads us into all of the truth. We need to kind of put an anchor in our minds regarding this passage. And we need to remember that we entered into the commonwealth of Israel. We entered into their covenant with God. And that's why we are saved as believers. So they are the natural branches, but we are the wild branches. And we've been grafted into their root system. And after God speaks about this new covenant, it's almost like his heart is bursting with love and he shares this ultimate statement of commitment. God is full of love. He's full of romance. He's full of passion for his people. And we can see it in this passage, starting from verse 35. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. So in other words, if the sun doesn't come up in the morning, if the moon and the stars don't come up at night to provide light for us, then that's when God has fully forsaken Israel and they are no longer a nation, especially chosen people before him. And has that happened? No, never. The sun always comes up in the morning. That's a pretty radical statement. And I was just meditating upon the sun and how it goes through its orbit. Because at night, the sun isn't here and that's why it's dark. But the sun is always present. It's just going across its orbit, right? So even though we don't see the sun, it doesn't mean that it no longer exists. And Israel throughout its varied history has gone through these times of light and darkness, uh, more probably more darkness than light. And the sun has disappeared in a sense, but it doesn't mean 
that God has not had an everlasting love for Israel, an ever constant love for Israel. And I think of the book of Esther. People commonly say about the book of Esther that there is not one mention of God throughout the whole book. But that was a point of time where the nation of Israel could have been completely exterminated. But yet God, through a set of circumstances, was able to reverse the fortune of Israel and he saved them. But there's not one mention of God in that book. And this was a pagan kingdom that we're talking about. And so the sun wasn't necessarily shining, but the sun is ever constant and it's ever there. So through the darkest times of Israel's history, God has been present. God has been active. God has loved them with an everlasting love. And if God did not love them that way, then who's to say he would love us that way? But thank God he does love Israel with an everlasting love and he hasn't given up on them and nor will he give up on us. And so through the darkest times of our history, the sun, it may not seem like it's there, but it's ever present and it will rise again. We need to just keep that in mind when it comes to God and whatever circumstances we're going through. If that weren't enough, God continues on in verse 37. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. So those are some of the verses that talk about God's everlasting love for Israel and that he will never give up on them. It doesn't matter what they have done. This is why I can clearly say that replacement theology is an error. And besides all that, there are all the prophecies that talk about Jerusalem in the end times, about the Jews in the end times, seeing Jesus whom they have pierced. They will recognize him for who he is. They will mourn for him as a firstborn son. So all of these prophecies, they will come to pass. And it shows the importance of Israel in the end times, but also that God will circle around again, just like the sun, and God will redeem them and bring them back to their place. So we can understand God's love for Israel by studying his emotions and understanding some of those passages where he expresses his emotions, how he feels about Israel. We could also understand God's heart for Israel because of the fact that he married Israel. And we can also see his heart for Israel as he seeks to love them and act on their behalf in compassion and mercy during the struggles of their history. And one passage in particular that I would like to look at is Exodus 3. And this is the call of Moses. So Moses sees the burning bush and then God reveals himself to Moses. Starting from verse 6, he says, Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. And this is the key verse that I want to focus on is verse seven. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I feel like this is a great transitional verse for us because we want to understand God's heart so that we can begin to have God's heart for God's people. And God lays out three different points of focus for us in this verse. One, I have surely seen the oppression of my people. In my previous podcast about reasons why Christians should care about the Jews, 
I mentioned how I began to explore the history of the Jewish people, not only in the Bible, but beyond 70 AD. I read books, I watched documentaries, I listened to people sharing their testimony about going through the Holocaust. All of these various things gave me the ability to see into the oppression of the Jewish people. And I remember when it really struck me that I began to have God's heart for his people. I was talking to a friend of mine on the phone. I had mentioned to her all the different things that I was learning about Jewish history and how it was just so horrible. I mean, all of these different things were just striking me at different points. And I just felt so burdened in a good way in that I started having God's feelings and God's emotions for Israel. And so we had a really great conversation because she also has a heart for the Jews and has a heart for Israel. Then towards the end of our conversation, we prayed. I started praying about all the different things that I was learning about Israel. And at a certain point in time during this prayer time, I started to cry. And I'm not easily given to crying. It's not that, um, except sad movies. I cry at sad movies. But um, it's not that I'm not emotional or sensitive. I think I'm pretty sensitive, but I'm not easily given to crying. And I started crying as I was praying about them. And I realized that it was like God's heart was coming upon me for his people. And this was what he was feeling for them and all the different things that they've had to go through. All the different struggles, rejections, trials, sorrows. I not only could see the oppression, but then I could feel God's heart in their oppression because he heard their cry, just like it says in Exodus, and he knew their sorrows. And that word know is the Hebrew word yada. And it's the same as, you know, Adam knew his wife. So it was just a very intimate understanding of the sorrows that they've had to go through. And there's a companion verse in Matthew 9, starting from 35 to 38. And I call it a companion verse because it resembles the passage in Exodus. It says that Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching, preaching, and healing every disease and sickness. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest. And I just really love this passage because I feel like it's a key in order to develop compassion for really any cause, any group of people is that we first need to see, right? We need to hear, we need to understand the plight of the people. So we need to understand the plight of the Jews, all that they have gone through. And then when we see that, then cause and effect, we will be moved with compassion for them. And that's what I felt was happening to me during that phone call was I was beginning to really be moved with compassion. And then lastly, Jesus says, please pray that more workers would be sent into the harvest field because the fields are ripe with harvest, but we do need more workers. And back in the Exodus passage, when God was talking to Moses about seeing the oppression of his people, hearing their cry and knowing their sorrows. He's like, I'm going to raise up a deliverer to go back to deliver them from Egypt. When we're moved with compassion, then we will be inspired to act. Even if it's praying for more workers into that harvest field, we want to understand God's heart for his people, but then we want to have God's heart 
for his people. And after we have God's heart for his people, then God may come around and knock on your door and ask if you would be willing to meet a need for his people or begin to minister to the Jews in some way, whether that be praying, talking about the Jews to other people, sharing the truth about them, praying that Christian eyes would be made open so that they can care about the Jews the way that God wants us to care about them. But in that, we have to recognize the resistance that we're going to receive from the Jewish people as we seek to minister to them because the relationship between Christians and Jews throughout Jewish history has not been a good relationship. But I think that God put into the Bible examples of people who ministered deeply to the Jews were rejected, but they continued to love them the way that God loves them with this unconditional everlasting love where it doesn't matter what the Jewish people do. And the example that I want to bring out is Paul. In Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul totally lays out God's view of the Jewish people, what they've gone through, but also their future destiny. And he says these important verses at the very beginning of Romans 9, starting from verse 1. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bear me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Now, Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles and not the Jews. Ironically, Peter was the apostle to the Jews. Now, Peter is the figurehead of the Catholic Church. I want you to reflect on that at a different time, but reflect on it because I think it speaks loudly about how things got shifted in a weird direction after the first century church. But Paul, in his early ministry, he reached out to the Jews time and time again. They rejected him. They wouldn't listen to him. They chased him out of their various cities. They tried to get him in trouble, you name it. And yet, you know, at times Paul was exasperated, but he never stopped loving the Jews and he never stopped wanting their salvation. I think God is calling us to be that type of people. And we know again that the Jews are going to go through a second Holocaust. And will we be committed to them? Will we love them the way that God loves them? Regardless of how they react to us, they may reject us while we're trying to help them, while we're trying to love them. But regardless, the only way that we can have that kind of love that's unconditional, that's everlasting, that it doesn't matter how many times we're rejected is if we have God's love for them. Next week, I'm going to talk about the third reason why Christians need to care about the Jews, and that is to more deeply understand our own identity as Christians in relationship to the Jewish people. We don't fully know who we are apart from the Jews. And that comment may surprise you, but it's really the truth, according to the word. I know that this subject is a slow unpacking, but it does take time. And I hope that you give yourself to it so that you can view the Jews and Israel the way that God views the Jews and Israel, but also so that we could have God's heart for his people. Until next time.